kunstner samtaler med Torbjørn Sandman Andersen. til aftens udsendelse. Mit navn er Torbjørn Saumann Andersen. Det er mig en fornøjelse i dag at præsentere et projekt, der hedder Den udvidede biograf. Det er på engelsk altså The Expanded Cinema. Det er et projekt, der er kørt af engelske kunstnere, engelsk amerikanske kunstnere Jim Hobbs og Andrew Hill. Og vi hørte lige et lille udpluk af en lydoptagelse fra Athen, som, som de har foretaget en biograf der. Jim Hobbs kommer med her på telefonen her om lidt, um, fra England. Han er en samtidskunstner og lektor ved Greenwich University i England. Og sammen med hans kollega og samarbejdspartner fra Greenwich, Andrew Hull, der har de netop været på Cinematiket med en filmforvisning, som de kaldte for, altså for den udvidede biograf. Her så man 16mm filmprojektioner, altså gammeldags film, både stå og blive betjent direkte i biografsalen blandt publikum. Her var varierende billeder fra både kendte kunstnere som Stan Brakhage, Mary Ellen Butte og David Leisner. Og lyden var altså en live lyd, der både var elektronisk og ekstrapoleret direkte fra filmen på en kompliceret måde, som jeg håber, at Jim Hobbs vil, vil fortælle os mere om i vores interview lige her om et øjeblik. Lydene, vi hører, er fra Athen, fra projektet Image Sounds, der foregik der, og vi får nu en spoken word oplæsning, film, live lyd til film, og det er med Jim Hobbs, Andrew Hill og stemme af Maria Glicka. Værsgo. Left to right, to right, 
Yes, and what we heard here was uh, a reading from Athens by Maria Glicka and with sound by Andrew Hill and Jim Hobbs. And I've got Jim with me now, I think, on the phone. Can you hear me now, Jim? Yep, you're good. There, I can hear you. There it goes. Yeah. Thank you. I just had to set one last button before everything worked, but it seems to be working great. Okay. Hi, Jim. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks, Toby. How are you? Good. So you were over here in Denmark, in Copenhagen, in uh, to visit the Cinematheque recently. We were there uh, last Friday night. Um, well, we were actually there on Thursday night. We did a talk at 68 Art Institute, a small gallery there in Copenhagen, and then we performed live at the Cinematheque um, on Friday. Great. So that was that was a double bill, and um, I got to see the the showing in the Cinematheque. It's a it's a film and sound piece that you've toured you've been in athens and i believe you've been somewhere else as well yeah yeah it's a it's a project that actually started in new york um where i was doing a kind of a collaborative work with a film arts organization called mono noir and they hooked us up with uh, the new york public library for performing arts uh, at lincoln center and so it was a research project that sort of looked at um, not only my work and andrew's work but also kind of the larger sort of history of expanded cinema, experimental cinema, but how sounds and images come together. And uh, we were able to sort of work with the archive at the New York Public Library and um, kind of create a program that explored sort of image and sounds. 
then that's what's now been sort of brought um, abroad this year. So to the UK, to Greece, and then also to Copenhagen, to, to, to Denmark. Great. And uh, I'm wondering, could you tell me something about the, um, the kind of films it is? Because obviously now we are, we are on the radio and maybe you could just introduce uh, briefly a little bit what kind of movies it was you selected. Sure, sure thing. Um, one of the things that I like about even this conversation we're having right now is the liveness of it. And I think this idea of being live is really exciting. So um, with the films that we chose, we wanted to choose films that um, could possibly be um, not necessarily screened, but performed live to. And I think the importance here is the idea of liveness and how that kind of um, it adds to the experience of um, watching this type of program. So we, my curation, I, I chose these films based on what I found at the New York Public Library in their archive. And I was led not necessarily by um, anything really specific about, say, a curatorial practice, but rather um, images that, or films that seem to have some resonance with me and within my own work. And so I spent three days there going through kind of a lot of their catalog about what they had. And I was drawn to things that were also quite abstract, um, so, for example, Mary Ellen Butte, which we just heard uh, Maria Glicka's uh, response to, uh, that was really important to me because that was one of the first films that ever really sort of brought together this idea of, of, of sounds and images. And the idea of rhythm and light is the idea that the sonic um, and how it influences these kind of abstract images. And for Maria to be able to respond in her own way is kind of an interesting sort of newer take on it. So part of the reason that we were looking at films of that nature was also to look at the, the historical nature of them, but also then apply something kind of new to them. Um, so across the board, we've had those types of films. Um, so there was Stan Brackage, Uh, who did Garden of Earthly Delights, which was actually meant to be silent, which was quite nice because the visuals do create the sound. All the way through to, we had Bruce Connors' Cosmic Ray, which included uh, Ray Charles. Uh, it's almost like one of the first pop videos ever made, um, for lack of a better description. It's a little bit more than that, but really exciting to see how sound works with that. And then we also coupled it with some of these other films um, that we brought in from contemporary artists. So to pair those up and to write some new sort of soundtracks or sound responses maybe is the best way to describe it. And that's how we then worked with some of the other people that I know here here in London um, or in the UK that I thought their work would sit well within that canon of sort of experimental cinema, but also the possibility of how we could actually add sounds to that as well. Great. So just to go back, one of the people you mentioned, Mary Ellen Butte, that's, I believe, yep. the oldest piece that's in the screening, is that correct? That's correct. That's film from 19... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's from 1936. And again, one of the beauties of working with sort of an archive is that you have access to a lot of these films. And again, it was very special and very important to understand that bringing these films sort of abroad or bringing them as a touring program, it's not just about playing a file or having a projection. It's actually the whole experience of watching it on film. And if you think about the idea of how light passes through film, it becomes a much more sort of um, experiential um, um, kind of program as opposed to just simply watching a film. Yes, uh, I I said that in the introduction in in Danish, which uh, you didn't hear Great. because you weren't caught in at that time. But I think <laughs> I believe I I mentioned just really briefly that it's uh, the idea of the expanded cinema as you showed it in the cinematic was that you had the setup where you had actual film projectors like the the old kind, so to say, but film projectors that you had. Um, uh, standing in amongst the audience, really in in the room. Yeah, I mean, one one of the things that I it's it's very interesting because sometimes it's very difficult to get um, these films or to work with certain people who hold archives. But 
when working with the New York Public Library, um, I was working with a woman named Eleanor Rossi Snook, who's been amazing, and we talked about the program and the idea that the projectors were going to be in the space with the people. And again, the experience of, of cinema that isn't just merely sitting down in comfortable chairs and watching something and being entertained, but rather the idea of the physicality that can happen um, when you watch these things, but also experience the sound. And one of the great things that happened at the Cinematheque is Oscar Peterson, we worked really hard with him and all of the technicians there to patch all of our live sounds into the sound system in the cinema. So again, it's, it was about using the cinema as a space where people normally come to watch films, but at the same time kind of try and just tweak the use of that space into a way that allowed it to be more expansive and probably, you know, to use it in a way that, that is, isn't necessarily traditional. And I have to say that the technicians were just brilliant. They, they loved the idea of trying to figure these problems out and, you know, to challenge the cinema as a space was fantastic to work with these guys. They were really up for it and they solved the problems and just big shout out to them. They were great. They were absolutely fantastic. I mean, as you describe it here, I certainly recognize that from the experience in the cinematique, uh, that yeah. um, it was a very physical experience. Like the film yeah. and the the way you sit watching, you can practically feel the the film reel roll through the the projectors. You can certainly hear it, the flapping and um, and and a lot of the films that you've you've picked is also have a lot of physicality to them. They're very dynamic. Yeah. Yeah, I think they all, I mean, again, there's, there was quite a range across them. And, you know, I think Guy Sherwin and Lynn Liu's piece was really exciting, you know, where they've just literally taken washi tape, Japanese washi tape, and placed it onto clear leader, clear film. Sorry, and sorry then, I'm just going to interrupt. What is yep. washi tape? Okay, so washi tape is kind of a decorative tape um, that's, I mean, it's it's used in a lot of places, but it's 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 its origin is is Japanese. So it's 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 kind of a decorative tape that is used, you know, for wrapping packages and things like that. Okay. It's semi. It's semi-transparent yeah. or, or semi-translucent, um, and what um, they had done with that piece was simply to cut it into certain lengths and then allow that to then run through the projector. So you have these these sort of abstract lines. Um, but at the same time, there's a real physicality to it. So like any time that you're using projections, you know, the idea of a projection is it's making something larger. It's sending something out across space. So every time you sort of take a piece of washi tape, there's just a little bit of, you know, fibrous hairs and things like that. So it mm. gives it that sense of depth. And again, that whole thing about when you show things on film, the, the idea that you're passing light through a physical material, there automatically is a sense of depth within that. And I think that physicality comes through in almost mm -hmm. all of them, from the scratches to, you know, just the real sort of raw physicality of, say, someone like Bruce Connors' film. And even Dave Lester's film, I thought, the way that he had printed it, it's, it's just got this kind of um, almost three-dimensionality to it um, that is really, really heavy. And I'm just going to say that, yeah, so David Lester, we heard a little bit of the excerpt from the audio from his piece. It's a piece that you and and um, and Andrew have uh, rescored the, the piece, yeah, made, a, made a new soundtrack if you want. And yeah. um, also I would say one more note here. When we saw the, when we spoke of Mary Ellen Butte and that, yeah. that piece, which is the oldest piece in the show, is 80 years old, uh, roughly, and it's um you've got a new live score from for that as well that piece i'm just going to try to describe it a little bit because yeah. i'm thinking that um as we are talking about these physicalities in a way i think that one thing that's um good to think about is um that that piece so can you describe what you see in something like the mary ellen 
beauty piece. Maybe you could do it better. You know it inside out, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, I was laughing. I was thinking about how are we going to do this on the radio, talking about film and images, you know, without yeah, using true. words. Yes. And um, it is a difficult thing to explain. But I think for me, I would call it um, it's 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 using film and light um, and sort of abstract sculptures in a way that is filmed, so as to remove the location of those things. So what you're left with are what might be as simple as a bit of um, timber that's been lit in a certain way that mm -hmm. the camera moves across it or they're using double exposures or mirrors okay. to yeah. create these patterns across mm -hmm. the film. And so they dance, they move, they shift. So moving a light source from one side to another of an object starts to create this kind of movement. So even if the camera isn't moving, these 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 um, abstract forms are starting to, to come into vision, mm -hmm. okay? And what's interesting about that is that the, the film is, is, is quite abstract up until there's one point where she shows these kind of sparklers They're kind of like fireworks. Yes. And you can re and you can recognize them instantly. And I think, in a way, when I see something like that, I've been taken on this abstract trip and the sounds that we sort of generate with that. And, you know, again, Steph Stefan Levering is the one who did the soundtrack um, or the sound response um, mm -hmm. at the Cinematheque there. Mm -hmm. But at, at that point, when you suddenly are revealed that you, you realize that what this person has been doing is, is using just these basic elements and has created this kind of magical um, abstract landscape, that's kind of what's happening within that film and I love that and again so how sound then can respond to that and open it up even further is really exciting great yeah I, I agree with you completely and I've got to say that uh, Stefan Levering I don't think we'll have the, his live music uh, score from Cinematique with us so what I have is um, I have the recordings from the project you did in Athens and we heard a little bit of David Lester's piece and I promise I will um, play that piece again at some other point, but um, maybe not, if not today, then another day. Great. And um, Yep. Sorry, I, I just, I have to redo that part. I missed out that, uh, piece on the audio. So I'm just going to ask you that question again. I think it got okay. faded out at the wrong time. So I'm going to try to do a, do a rewind. So David okay. Lester's piece, we have that on audio from Athens. I'm going to play that again at some other time, if not today, okay. then another day. And my next question was, um, if you would tell us a little bit about how you and Andrew Hill are working together, because of all the audio we have Uh, today that we heard in the beginning of the program and that we will continue with after the two of us have spoken here is taking in Athens uh, very recently and yeah. um, just before you came to Cinematic it really and the two of you are the the people who are in the in the cinema running the audio and the visuals and how does your collaboration work Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting one because I think as Andrew and I have continued to um, tour the project, like like with anything, you start to recognize, you start to develop a relationship, so it starts to shift or change. There are some basic elements of the sound that um, Andrew has done uh, prior to uh, the performances. So there are, in certain cases, some bass layer tracks that we're putting down, um, and that comes down to Andrew actually scoring the material um, and 
the thing that we started to realize, though, is that in terms of this live performance, what we really wanted to work with was, was this idea of texture and sound and space. And so it's very difficult to just sort of say that we're just Jim's in charge of the projectors and Andrew's in charge of the sound. So what we started to do is, you know, I'm coming in a little bit and actually adding other elements in as well. So Andrew has his sort of gear that he's working with, mostly electronic things that are sort of manipulating sound noises or electrical currents. And at the same time, I might be working more, be more physically uh, working with sort of contact mics and trying to generate sounds that way. And how we sort of work together is there's this kind of, you get a feeling. And so as I look over at Andrew, especially, I think, for the final piece, um, which is called Vientos Fuertes, which you might end up playing an excerpt of that here in a minute, um, we, we really are sort of improving. And in a way, I'm pulling optical sound off of the projectors, while at the same time, Andrew is manipulating some of those sounds live. And we're going back and forth. And I sort of look at Andrew, not like a conductor, but yeah, as a collaborator. And I look at him and it's like, okay, now it's time to change. I'm going to put on these other sort of um, loops of films that are going to sort of move um, the, the viewers into another space. We're going to go very, very abstract. Let's start to crank it up. Let's get it really loud. Um, I want to take people into a chaotic space because that's the way the film's going. That's the way that we sort of talk to each other. And again, it's developed over time. So I think we have a good understanding of each other while we try and figure these things out. Okay. And again, that's all, that's, all, that's all very much about the liveness of it as well. So again, to be able to sort of do that live, and again, you, you respond to the space as well and what mm. the space needs. So, um, for example, on the David Lester track um, of Headgear, it was very much about trying to sort of feel that space and how much we crank it up or how, how sort of angry Andrew gets. He has a contact mic onto a piece of slate with a piece of paper on there. So he's drawing these lines, mm. but it's, it's, it's the sound of the pencil scraping. And then that mixed with a pencil hitting a contact mic and sort of all of these things become very physical while on the film itself, there's a person taking measurements of someone's head and actually taking down notes. So it's ironic that the sound of what a pencil might make is then sort of transformed into this very, very odd and alien sound. Mm. Yeah. It's Again, it's hard to describe the sound. We'll play it again later, and we'll probably maybe the listeners will be able to to recognize the the sound or something just being uh, scratched across a, a surface, basically as if you would like um, a child would rock, you know, will play with a ruler across a, a, a wooden desk or something like that. So that's the kind of sounds we're looking at, which is mixed in, as you say, with a lot of other electro sounds, and some of them. Again, they're coming directly from the film, and the film, the light and the print of the film is being run through the audio track. So the visuals, in a way, becomes the... It gets quite technical. It gets kind of nerdy, Jim, I have to say. Yeah, it is. It's, it's sometimes very difficult to explain how those, those sounds or those noises are generated. Um, and again, it, it does come down to the materiality of, of, of film itself. And film, you, basically you're using a 16 millimeter film projector in a way that isn't just about projecting the image. You're actually using the image to disrupt the optical soundtrack, which then in turn creates or generates these noises. And for me, it's, it is a technical thing, but it's a very simple, basic, primal thing. And you mentioned a child sort of dragging a ruler. It's as soon as you remove the image of a child dragging a ruler, that sound becomes something so other 
And if we open ourselves up to the fact that it's not a child dragging a ruler, instead it's a sound that is about dragging or a sound that is about stopping the light from coming somewhere, then suddenly you can start to begin to realize that these sounds actually have a lot more meaning than just simply sort of being the thing that it's associated with. It's, it's, the, it's the diegetic versus non-diegetic sounds, the sounds that aren't on the screen. They're, they're coming from other places, you know? And uh, have you heard the, yourself the soundtrack from these events? Because I was... Um really surprised to hear it when I when I listened back to it I of course as exactly as you are what you're talking about now when I when I saw the sounds you know I saw the sounds of course I didn't I heard the sounds but I saw the images and it makes so much that you kind of your consciousness or what you want is like moving between the two of them with a different kind of um, kind of a movement between the eye and the ear and When I listened back to the soundtrack, uh, I got a very, very different experience, a great experience. I was really positively surprised. I was like, oh my God, this sound is so great and it has a lot more to offer than I actually thought immediately. I'm sorry, sorry that's rude. But um, I experienced it, but when I listened to back to it, I really thought there was a lot more to it. Yeah, yeah. It's And it's funny for me, I think anybody who does performance, it's very difficult to go back to any sort of recordings or documentation of it, because when you do perform live, you're just in it. And it's it's, it's as if saying that you're so conscious, you're in the moment. Instead, you, you are just moving through this thing. And then when you come back and you sort of hear or you see these things, they do take on sort of a different life. It feels like I find it very difficult that we're even the authors of that sometimes, you know, because those sounds that we were created um, are are so um, removed from the experience that I and Andrew probably had delivering that. And I should say as well that on um, the end of that recording, uh, Vasilis Vlastaras um, was also there making some noises as well. And again, it added just this other element into it. And that part of that improvisation that was happening where you bring in these other people to sort of challenge your own way of, of, of kind of performing, that was a very large part of how we approached this this project. So by bringing in other artists, sound artists or visual artists, it, it, it shifted every place we went. So every time that program was played or sort of performed, it was something new. So no matter what, even though it might be the same sort of materials going through um, a certain um, chronology or a certain order, they're always different. Every time it was different. And so to go back and to listen to that recording is something quite special and something quite bespoke in terms of what actually happened in Athens. Sorry, I'm just going to have to retake that. Was a, sorry, that was arrogant. Um, I suggest here that we take a really listen to a really small excerpt just to to get to visualize. I was going to say, can is is there a word for eerie, eerie eyes um, to visualize for our ears what it is we're talking about? Because I have the the recording from Athens. Uh, playing, I can mix it in, and we can just listen to it for a minute or something, and and that's that's what we'll, that's 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 where we are at. That's what we are talking okay. about. Yeah. So Great. I'll, I'll do that now. Great.
was just a really brief um, interlude there. It was a bit more howling. I have. Uh, I'm going to play the full piece later. It's about uh, half um, uh, about 30 minutes worth of. Um, and did you have the title for that particular piece? It's the piece at the end where you and Andrew are are are, are kind of freestyling or something like this. I don't know how to describe <laughs> it. You, you obviously have. You have must have this film cl clips prepared to a quite large degree. But on the other hand, it seems as you have um, a space to improvise in as well. This, this is the piece. I wasn't able to hear it, but I'm assuming this is the, okay. this is the piece um, that had the windmills. Is that correct? Yes. When you, you yeah. showed it, you had uh, uh, a shot of a windmill just turning around, just really focused yes. on the, actual wind, uh, the actual mill part of yep. it. And you had, in Copenhagen, you showed these kind of clouds that look kind of almost artificial. And yeah. you move that image in and out of the windmill yep. image. So yeah. while you see the sky yep. behind the windmill, you have these clouds that kind of pop into that image and then leave it again in a yeah. quite yep. a strange way. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that that piece, I mean, it's it's interesting for me. I mean, in terms of my artwork or where things come from or where the inception or the, the concepts begin to sort of come from, I mean... It, a lot of it sort of stemmed from a walk that I did. Um, I live now, not necessarily in London, I live on the south coast of England now. And out where I'm at, there's a wind farm uh, with all these large turbines. Mm -hmm. And I've always, you know, I come from a sculptural background. And so these windmills that are, kind of take up the landscape in a way are quite magnificent in terms of sculpture, in terms of kind of monoliths. And as I was walking through them, you get this amazing sense of physicality. So if anybody's ever been underneath a turbine, mm. you know, you can feel their power. I know they generate power, but the way in which they move is, mm. is, is sort of scary, but at the same time, beautiful. And I think when I first had that experience of, of going near these things, I immediately was, I was, I was reading Cervantes and I was reading Don Quixote and I was kind of thinking about what an experience might be of kind of tying these two things together of what would it be like to try and charge at one of these wind turbines like Quixote had done <laughs> and to get sort of thrown into it and then spit out the other side. So just to take a very simple experience of what it might be to, to be churned out by um, a wind turbine, um, that's kind of where the, the concept of it really came from. And so how do you sort of translate that into this kind of experience? So it starts out with something very pensive, very slow, and trying to sort of um, almost idolize this this monolith. You know, you can think about, um, you know, sort of 2001 and Stanley Kubrick and this idea of this this sort of this monolith thing that sort of stands mm -hmm. in the landscape. And it's something to sort of be in awe of. There's also something very hypnotic about watching something just sort of spin. You know, it's like watching a fire. Um, it feels very primal to me. And I'm also thinking about the idea of loops and the way in which the 16 millimeter projectors are running on these loops and these, these mechanisms. And so the idea is to take you through that experience. And so while at times it's very much reverie, it's about dreaming and those clouds that kind of come into it. And then to sort of actually then start to challenge that and to work with the idea of these blades these windmill blades that start to literally cut, they start to cut and it starts to pick up space, starts to kick up, pick up speed, excuse me. And then what you're left with as the sound starts to pick up as well, then you're left with this kind of experience of like being thrown around or churned around by, by these sort of these gigantic machines. And 
Andrew is sort of playing live to this as well. So he's taking some of those sounds from the projectors while also sort of creating some of his own as we try and find that sweet spot where we take people into that experience until you're finally spit out at the very end into this sort of this, this field of blue, you know. Yes. Okay. That was a great description. And 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 what is what is the actual the full title of this piece? Just so I can introduce it properly yeah. in the radio later. Sure. It's um. It it's called Vientos Fuertes, which is Spanish for strong winds. And for me, it's kind of um. It's a bit of an homage, I would say, to this idea of Quixote and Cervantes, you know. And so giving it a Spanish title seemed quite fitting um, to talk about them in that way. All right, I'm not going to break my tongue on uh, Cervantes uh, <laughs> Spanish right now. So well, no problem. Yeah, maybe I'll get you to say it, and I'll record it, and I'll just play back anything anytime it has to be said or something like that. Um, so Very we'll strong, have our strong own winds. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, great. So that that was it. That's good because uh, this is definitely a piece we're going to listen to after the talk, and it's a really beautiful piece that builds up through um, these 30 minutes of sound. And what I really like about it is, uh, as well, is that you can really hear that sound of the projectors coming through. Yeah. You could, yes. You could hear that on the piece of plate buried in the program with the, the spoken word by Maria Glicka. You could hear in the beginning at the end the, the sound of the projector as well. I think you have to listen a little bit closely, but in this uh, piece called the strong winds then then it it should be obvious and it's really nice to 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 listen to it as well i think in the radio great um yeah so i think we more this um, got through my questions here i do great. have one question so you you had you spoke a little bit about um uh about the wind bells and your experience yes. with that is there um, there's uh, you also had another film in the piece, which is uh, the flowers. Again, it's a still life that's uh, that it's hard to describe. They're really beautiful. These very staged kind of flowers. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, I mean, in a, in a way, it's interesting because the 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 entire program is kind of bracketed um, on one side by a, a film of mine, and on the other side, a kind of a performance that 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 I've created, but and, and collaborated with with Andrew on. But this first film is almost the opposite, I would say, of the the, the final film, Strong Winds, or the final film yes. performance, Strong Winds, where it's really about looking, and it's about a very, very slow way of looking or observing something. And so those that project, which is called Nature Mort, uh, which again is a Latin name uh, for still life, um, and as I was working on that piece, um, I've always been a big fan of Robert Maplethorpe and his photographs. Um, and sometimes people forget that he he also took these beautiful photographs of flowers. And what I was doing with that piece is, technically speaking, I'm shooting film as Super 16 so that what's happening is the image is being taken all the way over into the optical soundtrack. And as I was sort of composing these floral still lives i was also trying to compose them in ways that i knew would disrupt the optical soundtrack so in a way i was looking for sounds through images or images that could make sounds and so in a way this idea of composition and we talk about composition in terms of music we talk about it in terms of layout um, i was very aware of how i was trying to compose 
floral still lives and then capture them on film so that they could make noise. While at the same time, those noises oftentimes are a bit, I mean, for lack of a better description, quite alien, Mm. sometimes aggressive, while at the same time, the flowers themselves are kind of um, very quiet and, and, and I would say traditionally beautiful, if I want to kind of try to go that way. I mean, they, they have a certain aesthetic. They're black and white. Um, they're sort of lit in a certain way. Um, they're very classical. And what's interesting, like, for example, there's one where I've, I've filmed an orchid. It almost whispers. It's very strange. And so it's like... And I feel like sometimes, you know, you're in a weird way, you are capturing what what the flowers might be might be saying, you know, um, and in a way, it's it's a, it's a language that we don't know, and how they begin to generate those noises through the film um, drives the whole thing forward. So at times, other flowers are kind of quiet or still; others seem sort of um, out of out of order with the sounds that are coming out of them. And for me, that was a really important part of that piece to be able to understand that even though I could look for the sounds and be able to try and find things, I still never quite knew what that would actually Mm -hmm. sound like until the film itself got printed. And as part of a live performance, again, sort of to bring it into its, its sort of being, we are taking the live sort of feed from the projector, which are these sort of alien noises. And then I'm also then running those through different effect pedals, analog pedals, to be able to bring out other sounds. So in a way, I'm also playing with what they're saying, these flowers. And Andrew, at the same time, is also adding other textures on top of it. So again, it's it's taking a film that's been shown in lots of different ways. But for these performances, it's really about bringing that to life and being able to sort of adjust as we go through the live performance. Yeah. Okay. That's a great description. Thank you very much. I, I'm, I've got a, a question more about one of the other films. I mean, I really enjoy the way how you you sort of talk us through these films. And I think you answer a lot of questions while you mm. describe them, actually, even by... Because for you, you talk as much about the description of the film as the history, as how it works as a material. And mm. uh, so it's, it's, it's really great. And um, I enjoy, enjoyed that. And I'm going to ask you about one last film, which was really a surprise to me and somebody I don't know anything about, and that's why I'm asking oh, you. And that's sure. um, by the Japanese uh, filmmaker Hiroshi Yamasaki. Yeah, yeah. Um, when when I was in New York and I and I and I and I came across that film, it was like it was like Christmas Day. It was like the best gift ever. You know, it's it's one of those things that I knew his photographs. I'd known Yamazaki's photographs, his heliography series. And again, we all, not that we all know everything, but I never knew that he had made these films. And again, when I came across this film, it reminded me a lot. I had done another piece uh, quite a while ago called Black Sun. And that actually was done with a soundtrack by Ria Nakajama. Um, and so I never knew that this, this piece was there. And so suddenly when I was in this archive and I came across it, um, it's basically a, a time lapse, a 24 hour time lapse with the camera kind of set on an angle so that the horizon is not flat or horizontal. It's on a diagonal. And what happens is over time, we just watch basically the earth turn and it's, and it's just magical. It's just so beautiful. It's so simple. And I think about if I relate that to the nature mort piece, which is about just looking, observing, it has that same kind of feeling about it of just staying in one place and allowing the world to sort of reveal um, its magic. And for that piece specifically sound wise, um, I think Andrew and I were kind of questioning what we were going to do with it. 
And I had actually worked in Seattle with um, a band called Kinski. Um, and it had worked with another film project where they had created these ambient sounds, these ambient tracks. And what we're doing within this piece is we're moving back and forth between um, the Yamazaki piece, the soundtrack that's on that, which is very ambient, very drone-like, and this other piece, which is also very drone-like. We're kind of shifting those around, and we just feel like we wanted to move people through the space or through that experience. So while you are kind of watching the world turn, you're also able to sort of kind of delve in and out through those sounds that also give you a chance to breathe because the, the, the program itself up to that point starts to build up to quite a, quite a, quite a, a loud crescendo, both visually and, and, and sonically. And this is almost a chance just to catch your breath. And, you know, you find beauty on either side of that where you sort of, you go through something and then you have that moment to just sort of, um, just, just to breathe, to lay down, to, to take things in, um, and to reflect. And I think that film really does that for me. Um, the film itself that we were using from the New York Public Library is um, it's aged quite poorly, so it's lost a lot of its color, so it's gone very pink. And the, the irony is I've never actually seen the real film in terms of its color. It's, it's, it's very difficult to find. And again, that's going to be another trip to Japan probably at some point um, to do that. But what ended up happening, though, is that suddenly when you see a film for the first time, like any, anybody who sees a piece of work for the first time, in my mind, it's it's pink. It's it's got to be pink, and it's and it and, and it works. And um, so for me, whatever that piece is in my mind, that that's where it's held at it, within this kind of this this pinkish hue. Interesting, interesting. It sounds, yeah. it sounds sounds delicate as well. I, I I don't remember the the hue. I remember the film very clearly, but not the. Yeah, yeah, it's it's funny because I've seen some documentation, visual documentation of the show at other places, mm -hmm. and you realize how pink it is, right. and it's a sign that the film has has gone bad basically, mm -hmm. and it's lost all of its color, mm -hmm. and in a way, it's it, it does something. It's like putting a filter onto something, and yeah. you know, and I think it it with within the scope of that program that we've done, it was always really important for me to to allow those films which are live themselves, so they do lose, they do become degraded. They, 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 they have a life of their own, especially after they've been shown so many times that, again, to not try and deny that, it's not mm -hmm. about sort of that ultra high definition image. It's actually kind of about the history um, of, of, of that work. It's about its aura, it's its soul, or whatever you want to call it. It, it. it has that, as opposed to just being about that perfect sort of uh, video, you know, so very different. Yeah, could you talk a little bit about more about that actually? Because I mean, you are a little bit sort of the custodians as antiquarians of an almost yeah. uh, obsolete uh, technology. I mean, we've, we've seen how yeah. in the later sort of five, ten years that this whole medium has been very, very nearly sort of made impossible to work in and uh, and exist. Also, again, with everything, all the yeah. every part of the equipment probably degrading without anything new being yeah. made available anymore what what, what yeah. do you think about that i mean obviously you are, you are very fond of the the that particular quality and the image and all the material yeah. that exists in that medium yeah is that the, i mean is that the whole is that is that what it is i mean uh, it's, it's interesting because i think as as an artist who works across a lot of different different mediums like i've never sort of i'm not like a diehard purist um but i think that these um films do a certain thing that say video can't do that say digital photography can't do and for me that that thing is about that liveness and that sort of that presence that when you show a film through a film projector it has a 
again, a sculptural presence inside of, of a space. Again, for me, bringing those projectors out into the space to screen the films is, is as much a part of the film itself. Um, so for me to recognize that showing something on film is about the experience as, a, as, as opposed to just watching it, um, that's for me oftentimes where film comes into it. And again, you know, when you look at a film projector, um, it is in itself kind of a beautiful object. Um, at the show in, in, in Copenhagen, we invited people up after the show to come and have a look. And, you know, it's that thing that people want they want to know. And, you know, I've done enough screenings where more people end up probably watching the film projector than the film. You know, they're, they're more sort of <laughs> engaged with the, the, the mechanism that does it because maybe we're, we're starting to get a little bit more out of touch with how things work. And in a weird way, a film projector, um, I drive a very old Volvo and you can understand the engine. And there's a, there's a sense like we can kind of understand what's actually happening there. Like it's, it's a magician who's actually showing you their, their trick. And, so, but the medium of film has become quite obsolete because of this thing. And, you know, for us to take this show on the road and to actually bring film projectors or to hire film projectors, we're lucky enough to have Jack Stevenson uh, in Copenhagen to sort of get a few more projectors in as well. Um, they are sort of big, heavy machines, and it is a labor of love to take these things with you. And I'm reminded a little bit as well. I mean, I've got a good friend um, named Dennis McNanny um, who's in New York, and he actually was a, was the invited artist for the first um, film program that we did there. And he talks about he plays um, in a, in a couple of bands. And he struggles because he likes to take a live band with him. But then suddenly, you know, the next time the next person who's on stage walks up with a laptop, and that's all that they have. And he kind of won't sacrifice that. And he, and he says it's just really important to have all the musicians there and all the gear there because that is part of the performance. It's part of the experience. And I think the same is true with something like this. You know, I couldn't just come in and give someone a file and then we play live. It's actually about the physicality of all of that. And, and film does provide that. You know, there is, a, there is a preciousness. There is a sense of urgency when you're working with that medium. And I think that for me is the exciting bit. That, that sense of urgency, you think that the, the mechanism of that urgency, if you like, the immediate, immediacy can be there mm. in, in digital, uh, probably way easier, actually, but you think it's the, the physicality and, and the way that it's maybe invisible to you, that's, um, that's the difference. Yeah. But again, again, when we talk about sort of the urgency or the immediacy, I think it's the liveness of the projection. Now, to, to shoot a film requires almost the opposite of digital, which is a weird, a weird sense of planning, a weird sense of not knowing. And again, maybe that in a way is, is the enjoyment of, of, of working with that medium specifically, the unknown that comes when you shoot with film. And even though it's, you know, a lot of us who shoot film or, or work in this way, you, you know what you're doing. But nonetheless, even after you shoot film, the fact that you have to give it away, you send it off to a lab, um, and then this thing that comes back to you is, isn't so immediate. And then again, for me, that's another important part about sort of shooting film is it, it kind of requires a bit of patience. It's like I think about printmaking, and I really enjoy going into a print room because it slows you down in a way, and you don't have that immediate like, okay, now let's cut everything up. Let's just do it really fast. You have to sort of follow a certain process to get a certain result. And even then, you're still sometimes surprised when you do get that thing. So it's the combination of Of, of making a film, going out there and doing it, and then when you perform it live, that's when you're dealing with that kind of that immediacy. Because when you're doing something live, we don't have a chance to sort of stop and restart it. 
And again, with, with, with digital, you could sort of, you know, sort of quickly rewind or, or go back very quickly or to scrub through things. With film, once you've gone past that point, you've got to sort of stop everything and then rewind it. And it's a physicality that, that again, I, I think is important to understand that, you know, what you are watching is, is quite fragile. You're, you're precious. You're in the moment. Um, and again, there's always that fear that something can go wrong. And I think, you know, sometimes that's maybe a little bit of a buzz as well that, you, you know, it might, might, might fail. Yeah, I mean, I I feel that very clearly here trying to operate this radio. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I love uh, it absolutely. Um, I was gonna say, in I think what you're talking about is also something that has to do with you actually being out there with a, in a place like a real place. You're interested in locations and places. Uh, uh, we're having an issue. Yeah, yeah. That's great. I love it. We just had a technical glitch. This is great. Okay, here it comes. Um, back. That's the sound of knocking on wood. No more. Um, so, what I was going to say is that for me, it seems like what you're talking about here is also the that kind of mm, I don't want to say responsibility, but something about the satisfaction of actually going to a real location, to being you out there, being somewhere, being at the bottom of those windmills, being in that industrial mm. building being in front of those flowers wherever you are to film the things with the camera and then follow yeah. it through all the way to the to the cinema it seems maybe that's one of the key points from you yeah i mean again i think i have a labor of love i mean maybe it's it's part of this idea of of the physicality of working i still find pleasure um in that um you know again part of my background of the way that I made a living as, as an artist, uh, before I was, I was teaching here at Greenwich was, you know, I was a builder. I used to do physical work and I still find enjoyment in that. And I think, you know, the, the, the pleasure of the physicality of something is, is to be able to travel somewhere, to be able to sort of, you know, to break a sweat. I, you know, lots of people maybe don't enjoy that, but that's something that I find really important in my life. Um, as I go through it, maybe sometimes I'm a bit too defeatist. Maybe I set up too many obstacles to make my life more difficult. But again, there's something for me about sort of being able to um, to to take the physical and sort of present it in a way that oftentimes is maybe poetic or beautiful. And I think that's something that runs through a lot of my work, anyways. You know, and so maybe that's just a resonance within with, within my life and how I approach life too. I mean, I think that's. Uh, I think this is the. Uh... That was a wonderful end credit, I think, because that that really is, brings us back also to the how what you experience when you you see the show and when you see the expanded cinema and uh, and your project, which is called Image Sounds. And, yeah. And that there, there, I think you find that you you do find a coherency within the the program. It's 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 quite wide ranging, I have to say, at the other time. Yeah. Listen, Jim, I think I want to say thank you and uh, thank you very much for for talking to me here. Because, Great. Uh, and thank you. Thank I you, Toby. I really, um, really want to play some of the recording from Athens and I think it needs, you know, you need to listen to it for, for a little bit of time, like yeah, a little a little while, not just like a few minutes, but... Great, great. So if I, if we sort of wrap it up here, then we'll have time to really get into listening to that piece, and I think it deserves that because it's some it's some excellent work, and uh, you know uh, that's also a credit to Andrew Hill, who's been very much also in charge of the the sound. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. He wished he wished he could be here, but he's on a on a flight to New York right now, so yeah. um, it would have been nice. Um, and I think um, just you uh, back at Greenwich to wrap up the year with your students. Huh? Yeah, yeah, it's a bit crazy. 
right. Well, listen, I want to I want to thank you. Just want to give a shout out as a thank you to 68 Art Institute and to the Cinematech for 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 helping us uh, put on that show there in, in Copenhagen. It was a great time, great experience, and we had such a nice time with 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 friends and other artists. Um, it's sort of that generosity that you feel when you go out into the world and you do struggle and you do strive. But everybody who who was there uh, was absolutely fantastic. So I just want to thank all those people that were part of it. Yeah, that's a good point. Sixty-eight Art Institute is is located here in in Copenhagen in Gottesgade, just up from uh, Cinematheket, and it's an interesting place. They do all kinds of stuff. It's not just film; it's uh, all kinds of art, and it's, uh, it's worth visiting. I'm definitely going to come again and see see what these these people are up to. Okay, thank you so much, Jim. And all right, you uh, thank day, you. Uh, evening. Yeah. Bye. 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 Og med dette så vil jeg sætte lyden af Image Sounds af Jim Hobbs og Andrew Hill på en optagelse fra Athen her i 2019. Den kommer her.
kunstnere samtaler med Torbjørn Saumann Andersen. Programmer med kunstnere og musikere om deres projekter, ideologier, vilkår og anekdoter. I samarbejde med The Lake og Bispebjerg Lokalradio.